on one summer's day in Prenzlauer Berg, I did a set of video interviews. The question I was asked to pop to everybody on the street was, what do the Germans do well? Most people were shocked at just being asked, struggling to think of anything. Do the Germans do it better? And what lessons do they actually have to teach? Or rather, have they learnt? In posing these questions, I hope to spark a different kind of debate about the country, not to suggest superiority, but to redress the balance. In the summer of 2020, British author and broadcaster John Kumpfner released a new book with a provocative title, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country. Just a few months earlier, John gave us a preview of the book's contents when he delivered the Goethe Institute London's 2019 Brady Lecture with the same title, Why the Germans Do It Better. And yes, that title made us a bit uncomfortable too. But don't worry, this isn't an episode about one nation being superior to any others. It's about what democratic countries in the West can learn from a unified Germany that they helped to create. You're listening to Talking Culture, a futures podcast. Talking Culture is a platform for thought-provoking discussions about the future of Europe, the UK and the world. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. What role will culture play in a post-Brexit, post-COVID-19, post-colonial world? And how can it contribute to a future that prioritizes sustainability, collaboration, diversity and inclusion? From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. I'm Franca Forth. In this episode, we're going to play you a recording of John Kampfner's lecture, because as relevant as his observations about Germany and the UK were a year ago, when Brexit was still dominating headlines, they're even more applicable now. So grab a coffee or tea, settle in and enjoy his take on what Germany is doing well and what we can all learn from a grown-up country. It's been a fascinating year to watch Germany through a British lens. I've spent much of my time this year in Berlin or in other parts of the country. I was in Berlin only today researching my book. From Duisburg, where I was only on Monday, to Dresden, from Frankfurt to Munich. I've talked to politicians, to business leaders, techies, artists, old friends, and random folk. Whenever I mention the book's working title and subtitle, and we're not going to really change it, we're just tweaking it, my German interviewees, and there have been many, they tend to fall off their chairs. They either laugh or they scream. Das können Sie nicht sagen. The Brits, mind you, usually say, mm, I see what you mean. <laughs> In January 2021, Germany will be 150 years old, but Germans will have little cause to celebrate this milestone. Through iron and blood, Bismarck created a new nation, a second Reich, out of a collection of disparate city-states. That nation is synonymous with two world wars, the Holocaust and division. No country has caused so much harm in so little time. Two other anniversaries tell a different history. In November 2019, millions celebrated to mark 30 years since the wall came down, and I was there with old friends. In October next year, we mark three decades since reunification. Half of Germany's lifespan, therefore, has been a tale 
of horror, war, fragility, and dictatorship. The other half is a remarkable tale of atonement, stability, and maturity. Equally, no country has achieved so much good in so little time. As much of the world succumbs to authoritarianism, as democracy is undermined from its heart, from an out-of-control American president, a powerful China, and a vengeful Russia, one country, I argue, Germany, stands as a bulwark for decency and stability. This is the other Germany, and this is the story I wish to tell this evening. Those with longer memories struggle to accept the notion of Germany as a moral and political beacon. For the past year and more, I have revisited the country, comparing all areas of society with other countries, particularly my own, the UK. My take will discomfort those still obsessed with Churchill and the Blitz spirit. Germany's constitution is strong. Political debate is more grown up. Economic performance has for much of the post-war era been unrivaled. Which other nation could have absorbed a poor cousin with so little trauma? Which other nation would have allowed in more than a million of the world's most destitute? Germany, for sure, faces many problems. The refugee influx has increased the cultural and economic divide between the haves and the have-nots, the somewhere and the globalized anywheres. Faith in the established political parties is waning. Many, particularly in the East, are turning to the simple slogans of the extremes. The economy is slowing, weighed down by an excessive focus on exports, particularly to China, an aging population and neglected infrastructure. At a time when Europe and the democratic world desperately needs leadership, Germany continues to be reluctant to meet its foreign policy responsibilities. So why the confidence? Why the faith? The measure of a country, or an institution, or an individual, for that matter, is not whether it faces difficulties, but how it seeks to surmount them. On that test, contemporary Germany is a country to be envied. It has developed a political maturity that few others can match. It has done so not because of a preordained disposition. It has learnt the hard way. Post-war Germany has had only eight leaders so far. Its politics have been remarkably stable. Konrad Adenauer is associated with embedding democracy. Willy Brandt helped engineer détente at the height of the Cold War. Helmut Kohl steered reunification. Gerhard Schröder introduced radical economic reforms that, mind you, have caused untold strife for his own party, the Social Democrats. The longest serving is Angela Merkel, the woman around whom so much of contemporary Germany has revolved. I first met her when she was an unassuming advisor to the man who would become East Germany's first and only democratically elected leader, Lothar de Maizière. She and I drank coffee in the Palace de République, the asbestos-laden building that housed the parliament in East Berlin. I was struck by her poise, her restraint, and her calm when all around was chaos. If only I had known. Four key moments have defined Germany since the war. From 1945 to 49, a devastated and occupied land had to rebuild. The Trümmerfrauen, rubble women, are the symbol of that era. Almost all towns and cities were damaged, many were destroyed. Millions of people were displaced. The trauma of total defeat and a reluctant realization of heinous crimes dominated the national consciousness. The Allies, particularly the Americans, enabled the country back onto its feet. 
In one of the great paradoxes, the British played a major part in devising a written constitution so successful that it is cited by Germans as the object of greatest pride in their country. Why did we not think of creating something similar back home? (laughs) Instead of encumbering ourselves with our embarrassingly atrophied political structures. Germany rebuilt economically with staggering success. The atonement, the historical reckoning, did not take place in the immediate post-war years. It took until the rebellions of 1968 for the younger generation to confront their parents over the past. That is the second key moment of the German revival. This period was marked by the terrorism of Bader-Meinhof and the Red Army Brigade, the massacre at the Munich Olympics, bombings and assassinations of business and political leaders. The fragile democracy appeared imperiled. Germany stared at another abyss and came through it. Its democracy strengthened. The third moment was, of course, the fall of the wall and reunification. Only a few months before those heady events in Berlin, Helmut Kohl had welcomed Erich Honecker to Bonn with full military honours. The German Democratic Republic had finally received the recognition it craved. Within months, the militarised state had crumbled. It was a peaceful revolution. It came only months after Tiananmen Square. It could have turned out very differently. I lived through those dramatic years in 1988 to 90 as the Telegraph's correspondent in East Germany. I remember in East Berlin and Leipzig being among the civil society protesters and the church congregations calling for reform, knowing that police and army were outside and ready to fire on us. That they didn't was one of the great miracles. Reunification was not bound to follow and certainly not at such a speed. In the years since, many have chewed over the mistakes. Could more of the East German economy have been preserved? Was it all done too quickly? Were the Vessies, or rather the Besser Vessies, arrogant and insensitive? Why were the one or two aspects, the better aspects of East German life, not least the more emancipated role of women, not absorbed into the new country? These are legitimate questions. Yet I defy anyone to imagine any other country that could have done what Germany did with so little damage. The final big moment was the refugee upheaval of 2015. Merkel, who at the time was preoccupied with the Greek debt crisis, was slow to appreciate what was happening. Her eventual response was remarkable. To the consternation of some of its neighbours, Germany opened its doors to a human stream not seen in Europe since the end of the war. In so doing, she revived the fortunes of the far-right AFD, which was flagging badly at the time. But yet, what else she would say, as the criticism mounted, was a German supposed to do? Build camps? As the Merkel era comes to an end, Germany faces perhaps a greater test than any equivalent country. Why? As Thomas Bagger, an advisor to President Frank-Walter Steinmeier, points out, this nation depends entirely for its identity, stability, and self-worth on the liberal democratic post-war settlement and on the global rule of law. 1945 was Stunde Null, zero hour. Germany literally started again. Unlike Russia and France with their military symbols, or the US with the story of its founding fathers, or the UK with its Rule Britannia teaching of history and Dad's army war obsessions. Germany has nothing else to fall back on. 
That is why it cares so passionately about process, about getting it right, not playing fast and loose. That is why I, like so many who have a complicated relationship with the country, so admire the seriousness with which it sees its task. Most of all, it is about the power of memory. My journey goes back vicariously to the 1930s. My father, Fred, fled Bratislava, his hometown, as Hitler's army was marching the other way into Czechoslovakia. His father and mother smuggled the three of them in train carriages and cars back across Germany and out. They were nearly caught several times, but escaped by the skin of their teeth. Many of their extended family died in the concentration camps. He made his life in England via a 15-year stint in Singapore, where he met my English mother on the ward of the British Army Hospital. My childhood in the 60s and 70s contained the usual British fare of wartime songs, jokes, and TV shows at the expense of the Krauts. The dirty Germans crossed the Rhine, parlez-vous. Hitler had only one ball. The other was in the Albert Hall. They were fun at the time. One World Cup, two World Wars. Stayed around a bit longer. As recently as in 2002, Der Spiegel wrote, for many English, the Second World War will never end. It's just too much fun to taunt the Germans. For me, it changed at the age of 15. I started to study, fall in love with the language. I was exposed to Goethe, to Brecht, Max Frisch, and Nina Hagen. In my early 20s, I jumped at the opportunity to work there as a cub reporter in Bonn, the capital village, as it was known. In April 1986, nearly 50 years on from his escape, my father came to visit me. He had not been back since then. On the phone before his departure, he was apprehensive. His nerves were not improved when on landing, Lufthansa managed to lose his bags at Cologne Airport. Perhaps the Germans aren't that efficient after all, he said. It wasn't anything momentous that bothered me during my time in Placid Bonn. It was the present, and it was Germany's obsession with rules. I recall one moment sitting on the balcony of my apartment, one sunny Sunday lunchtime, listening to the local rock music station on the radio. Then the pips came on for the news, and my German girlfriend at the time reached over in the good old analog days of old-fashioned radios and switched it off. I asked her why. Didn't I know it was the Ruhrstunde, or Ruhrzeit, she asked. During the quiet hour, you have to show consideration to your elderly neighbours. Now that set me off. You don't need bloody rules for that kind of thing, I said. Oh, yes, you do, she retorted. I fell into stereotyping the herd mentality that leads to evil as well as good. She accused me of being a selfish Thatcherite who cares only for myself. I often think about that conversation and who was wrong and who was right. Some of the day-to-day -day annoyances are cliches, but they're no less true for that. I was once fined by a passing police officer for crossing at the fabled Red Man at four o'clock in the morning. When I told the officer that another car was unlikely to come down this quiet lane for hours, it made matters only worse. Rules are rules. The customer is rarely king. Service is often abrupt. Can't you see I'm busy? Once I received a beautifully embossed envelope on the windscreen of my car. Dear neighbour, it read, please would you kindly clean your car as it's bringing down the reputation of the street. <laughs> Some rules have relaxed. Others have been replaced by more modern variants. Woe betide a pedestrian who edges onto the cycle lane. 
when does punctuality go too far? A friend who gave me a lift to Sunday lunch at someone's home in Berlin suburbs recently arrived at seven minutes to one at our destination. Now we can relax and chat, she said. At one on the dot, she declared, we can go in now. <laughs> Are these more than niggles? Many Germans understand the frustrations but attempt three explanations or excuses. First comes the every country has its quirks. The second is a war-weary we-need rules in order to keep ourselves in check. The third is the most intriguing. German society is based around a sense of mutual obligation, shared endeavor, and a belief or hope that a rules-based order is benign. A former punk I met recently in Leipzig who would hang out back then with Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols in London explained that everyone's worst fear in Germany is a rechtsfreier Raum. A space with no rules is where the powerful exploit the weak. In a democratic society, he said, the role of the state should be seen as helping the weak taking on the strong. Ausgleichung, a leveling out between rich and poor. Germans have watched the four years of Britain's Brexit travails with disbelief. They cannot understand how the mother of parliaments, a country synonymous with stability and predictability, could have descended into political chaos. The referendum result itself came as a shock. They realized that the Brits were skeptical of the European project, as even some Germans are, but they couldn't imagine that this would be followed by a collective loss of nerve. Infantile and improvised are two of the most common descriptions now of British politics. Underlying the bewilderment was the absence of rules. I was asked to explain the intricacies. Which holds precedence, a one-off referendum or representative democracy? That, I mumbled, was murky. How could you have a system in which your speaker and your prime minister make it up as they go along? I would respond with a shrug of the shoulder that comes from having to explain the failings of your own country a little bit too often, knowing that there is no credible explanation. The dismay in many conversations with friends was offset by very German attempts at humour, not least impersonations of John Burko bellowing, Order! Order! One Berliner told me in all seriousness that she had given up her Netflix subscription because she gets all the entertainment she needs watching the House of Commons. In December 2018, during one of the many moments of parliamentary drama, when Theresa May's attempted deal suffered its first setback, the primetime comedy slot, Heute Show, the nearest equivalent to America's Daily Show, awarded the UK its annual Golden Dumbass Prize, alongside Donald Trump and Mohammed bin Salman. Over pictures of Merkel waiting awkwardly outside the Chancellery as the door of the Prime Minister's limo fails to open, host Oliver Welke describes how May can't get out of the EU and can't get out of her bloody car. Next, he shows a cartoon of a caricature British gentleman in a bowler hat and a pinstripe suit repeatedly burning his hand on a hot stove, then stabbing his eye with a fork. The audience falls about laughing. Hard Brexit, soft Brexit, liquid Brexit, just fog off, Valka yells. Britain, the butt of global mirth. Yet, as the Prime Minister of Brandenburg put it at a recent gathering of policymakers, Brexit is not a comedy show, it is a real-life drama in many acts. For most Germans I have met, Britain's troubles were much more the object of sadness and sympathy. So many conversations begin with the question, what has happened to you, my British friends? What indeed? Brexit was not, in my view, the cause of Britain's recent psychodrama. 
We are trapped by an atrophied political system and by delusions of grandeur. When Dean Acheson noted back in 1962 that Britain had lost an empire and not yet found a role, he probably would not have thought that 60 years on we still hadn't. We have never got over winning the war. From Dunkirk to The Finest Hour, two recent films, we continue to set our cultural and historical parameters by it. Most of our media depicts the European Union as a plot, usually German, sometimes French, designed to undermine English values. In 1974, on the eve of Britain's first referendum, Helmut Schmidt asked his cabinet what message he could give the Labour conference, which he was about to visit, about how to convince voters to stay in the EEC. One of his ministers, who had just met her British counterpart, Barbara Castle, told him, the only way to keep Britain in the European community is not to remind it that it is already in. This cable is part of an outstanding exhibition at the German House of History in Bonn, entitled Very British, A German Point of View. This has been one of the museum's most popular shows. It had been devised, the curator told me, before Brexit, but it was amended to include Brexit, and the curator admitted to me that visitor numbers have almost certainly increased because of Brexit. It shows how Germans have devoured British subculture, pop music, TV shows. They too found Faulty Towers funny in a self-deprecating way. The Beatles, the Stones, the Avengers to the present day. Most Germans can recount holidays to Cornwall, Wales, Scotland and the Lake District in their camper vans. They note again and again that this is an unrequited love. Straight after the war, Britain did not have the economic or military power of the Americans to devise the Marshall Plan. We did, however, play a major role in keeping Berlin free, in keeping Germany secure thanks to the British Army on the Rhine, and in helping to develop a free media and respected political institutions for which Germans remain immensely grateful. The fall of the Berlin Wall could and should have been a great moment for celebrating Britain's role in the rebirth of democratic Germany. An oppressive communist system was dismantled with extraordinary success. Margaret Thatcher, alongside Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, played a pivotal role. Yet all she saw was danger. A month after the incredible scenes in Berlin, she told other EU leaders at a dinner in Strasbourg, twice we beat the Germans, now they're there again. Pulling out maps of Silesia, Pomerania and East Prussia from her handbag, she intoned to France's president, François Mitterrand, they'll take all of that and Czechoslovakia too. Thatcher saw it as her mission to push back until she realised she had no one on her side. She tried privately to lobby Gorbachev. The Soviet leader had not for a moment suspected that his political reforms would lead to the collapse of communism across the whole bloc. His was the most pivotal role, and yet he too agreed not just to the reunification of Germany, but a Western-leaning Germany in NATO, and to Russia pulling back its military front line. To her credit, Thatcher did admit in her, her memoirs, written only three years later, that she had got it wrong. Quote, if there is one instance in which a foreign policy I pursued met with unambiguous failure, it was my policy on Germany and reunification. Even now, we don't quite know what we want of Germany. When its economy struggles, as it did in the mid-80s and the mid-90s, 
it is derided as the sick man of Europe, overregulated and hidebound. When Deutschland AG co- corners global markets, it is overweening and rapacious. Now that its economy is slowing again, the gloating is resuming. In foreign and security policy, we don't want Germany to throw its weight around the world, yet we do want it to pull its weight. A period around the millennium and the noughties when Tony Blair and Schroeder were talking about a common European home brought a brief interlude from that narrative. It all came crashing down with Brexit. The arrival of Boris Johnson as foreign secretary ushered in a new era of crassness. Foreign office officials despaired of the language he used. Leaving the EU, Johnson told the Munich Security Conference, would be a libération to the consternation of his audience. Faulty Towers buffoonery was back. Mercifully, there is another story about Germany and Britain. The lived experience in business, tech and arts demystified Germany to a new generation of Brits. The poor but sexy capital became a magnet for tourists. Other cities too. Germany now has the fourth largest contingents of Brits in Europe, after Spain, France and Ireland. According to a study by Oxford University in Berlin and the Berlin Social Science Centre, the number of Brits receiving German citizenship rose tenfold in the three years after the referendum, with the predictions for subsequent years to be higher still. Germans don't know how to characterise their own country, and they certainly don't like to talk it up. On one summer's day in Prenzlauer Berg, the now hipster area of East Berlin where I witnessed the church protests against the communist regime 30 years earlier, I did a set of video interviews for Karl and Janusz, friends who run a German language course for foreigners called Easy German. The question I was asked to pop to everybody on the street was, what do the Germans do well? Most people were shocked at just being asked, struggling to think of anything. Sometimes, seriously, sometimes ironically, they would proffer the following. Punctuality, reliability, correctness, thoroughness. One went so far as to say, we're tough, but honest and direct. We are good to our word. Many sought sanctuary in bread or beer. Do the Germans do it better? And what lessons do they actually have to teach? Or rather, have they learnt? In posing these questions, I hope to spark a different kind of debate about the country, Not to suggest superiority, but to redress the balance. Look around your local bookshop in any country, but particularly here in the UK, and how many books on Germany are not about the two world wars? There have been some admirable ones in recent years, but they are few and far between. My year-long road trip and series of interviews have not made me starry-eyed or blind to the country's many faults. Here is a brief further checklist of what works and what doesn't. Often, they're two sides of the same coin. The Grundgesetz, the basic law, was supposed to be a temporary constitution. When reunification happened, it was retained. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It must surely be one of the great pieces of democratic architecture anywhere in the world. Setting the division of powers between institutions and between the centre and the regions. Checks and balances are written in everywhere. The judges on the constitutional court are the closest thing Germany gets to celebrity, apart from our royal family. Germany's politics revolve around a search for consensus. Governments try not to spring surprises. Anything contentious is usually put out to a special commission, which is asked to come back whenever it's ready with recommendations acceptable to all. This political resilience is reinforced by the ability to absorb parties successfully into the mainstream. Politics is not reality TV. 
they leave that to us and to America. Merkel, when asked about Obama, once said, you can't solve the tasks of government with charisma. So is it dull? Well, maybe. But then again, they know how to do crisis management. Langsam aber sicher, slow but sure. That same mantra is equally applied to the economy. Germany is rarely a trendsetter. Even in the sector it does best, the car industry, it fell behind other countries when it came to electrification and to autonomous vehicles. Smart technology has come only recently. Payment by cash is still standard. E-government pretty much non-existent. Part of this is an aversion through history to Big Brother. The cornerstone of the economic miracle has been the Mittelstand, the many medium-sized companies that are global market leaders. But they are more than that. They are usually located in otherwise unremarkable small towns. They are often family firms with an embedded sense of responsibility to their communities. The difference between Germany and some other countries is the owners of these firms feel a sense of place. I suggested to one CEO in München Gladbach, who had just taken over his company from his father, that he could just go and flog it off and go and live the good life or start up something new. He fired back. When I think of selling my company, I get stomach cramps. You wouldn't be respected by your neighbors. You'd be running away from your responsibilities. You'd be called a coward. Co-determination, the representation of trade unions on boards, is taken as a given. As with politics, it's about securing inclusion. And here's another great strength. Unlike Britain and France, where pretty much everything begins and ends in the capital city, Germany has a dozen or so cities that, if not global in status, are certainly impressive enough to attract talent from across the country and further afield. Germany is the only developed country where GDP per capita is lower in the capital than in the country at large. Or to put it more simply, living standards are higher in Hamburg and Munich and elsewhere than they are in Berlin. That is changing, much to the chagrin of Berlin's traditionalist bohemians. And that isn't as much of an oxymoron as you might think. Property prices are soaring, leading to protests, even some calling bizarrely for expropriation. Compared with equivalent cities, Berlin is still much more affordable. It has lost some of that Cold War, draft-dodging, wonderful craziness, but you don't have to look far to find quite a lot of that still in existence. Finally, as we're at the Goethe Institute, a word on culture. I'll start with an anecdote. In 2014, Merkel invited David Cameron and his wife Samantha to dinner at Meserberg, their version of Chequers. They were joined by eight outside guests from the cultural world. That would never have happened in the UK. By way of small talk, Merkel asked the visiting prime minister what recent arts events he had been to that he would recommend. (laughs) Cameron stuttered and said awkwardly that he liked watching TV. This moment may seem gratuitously cruel to relate, but it highlights a wider gulf. Germans feel comfortable talking about culture, particularly high culture. Merkel was too polite to talk about which opera, concerts or theatres she'd recently attended or books that she had read. Museums, galleries, theatres, concert halls in Germany are sustainably funded. Many a small town has a great orchestra. Berlin has long been a global hub for the clubbing scene. Leipzig has now joined it. Artists have for a decade or two flocked to Germany. As for authorship, how many countries could boast a head of state who is a prolific writer on philosophy. 
Joachim Gauck, president from 2012 to 2017, and like Merkel, one of very few East Germans who have made it to the top, has just published a tome about the enlightenment value of tolerance, why it matters and how it is threatened. He traces its history from Voltaire to Mill to Kant and Goethe. Any British politicians out there who could turn their hand to something similar? There is so much I haven't got around to mentioning. For that, you're going to have to wait for the book. In conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, I will quote from another president, Richard von Weizsäcker. Quote, It is not a case of coming to terms with the past. That is not possible. It cannot be subsequently modified or made undone. He told the Bundestag in 1985 on the 40th anniversary of the end of the war. However, he added, anyone who closes his eyes to the past is blind to the present. Whoever refuses to remember the inhumanity is prone to new risks of infection. Weizsäcker's father, Ernst, a career diplomat, was Secretary of State in the Nazi Foreign Ministry. In 1946, he was charged at Nuremberg with involvement in the deportation of French Jews to Auschwitz. It is that self-questioning, that almost morbid restoking of memory, which is perhaps Germany's greatest asset. As the American commentator George Will wrote only this year, today's Germany is the best Germany the world has seen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. You've been listening to John Kumpfner give a preview from his book, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, now available from all major book retailers. The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international culture exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. At the Goethe Institute of London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more, both on-site and online for audiences throughout the UK and worldwide. You can find out more on our website, goethe.de slash London. For this episode, we worked with Better Lemon Creative Audio and executive producer Hannah Hathman, hosting research and narration by myself. Till next time, I'm Franca Forth. <laughs>